Second Corinthians chapter six. We're going to begin in verse eleven. If you haven't been with us, Second Corinthians, this letter, this second letter, actually, if you know all of the history, it's probably the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. But this letter is the most deeply personal letter that Paul ever wrote. This reveals more about Paul and what makes him tick than any other epistle that he wrote. Now, if you have read his other letters, you know Paul was not one of those guys whose favorite, favorite subject was Paul. Paul was not a guy who loved to talk about himself. But this letter, if you only read this letter, you'd probably come away thinking, wow, this guy thinks about himself a lot. This letter is different. Paul talks about his own trials, his own difficulties, how he looked at his own life. You cannot read this book, 2 Corinthians, and not get to know Paul. Now, what's the reason? Why is this letter so autobiographical? It's because Paul had been misunderstood. He'd been maligned. His reputation had been marred. Paul had these detractors, <clears throat> these, this opposition in Corinth, who were stirring up the pot against him. And no doubt, he also had supporters in his camp saying, Paul, you need to stick up for yourself. You need to send us word of all the great things that you're doing so you can shut these people's mouths. And this letter, I believe, is Paul doing so reluctantly. But he's not doing it to defend his own name. What he's doing is he's relaying all of this information about himself so that he can restore his relationship with the Corinthians. That's what we see in verse 11. Look with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 11. Paul says to the Corinthians, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. Literally, if you've been with us, you know Paul has revealed a lot of stuff about himself. Literally, he's saying, I've opened my mouth to you and I've opened my heart wide. My, my heart is wide open. I've laid it out all, all on the table. <clears throat> I'm not hiding anything from you. Paul says, there's no part of my heart that I've closed off. There's no part of my life that says, keep out Corinthians. And it's true. If you go through this, these verses, these, these chapters, as we've looked, chapter 1, verse 8, for instance, Paul says, look, I want you guys to know, there was a time when I lost all hope. You guys think of me as the, the apostle who never gets scared? Chapter 1, verse 8, he's like, I was beyond despair. He's like, I found the end of my faith. Chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, look, I'm just a, a jar of clay. I'm just made of dirt. He says, but it's amazing to me that God is using me. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. <clears throat> Last week, if you were with us, Paul admitted to the first time that he met Jesus, when he knew Jesus in the flesh, he said, I misjudged him. When Jesus walked the earth, I blew it. I really blew it. Paul is being transparent with these folks. He says, look, my heart is wide open now. I'm making myself vulnerable to you. Now look at verse 13. We'll come back to verse 12 in a second. He says, now in return for the same, I speak to you as children, you also be open. See, Paul says, I've opened my heart completely to you. I've made myself vulnerable to you. Now it's your turn. Paul says, be straight with me. Open up. Paul says, I've been wide open with my affections toward you. I've been wide open with my correction toward you. Paul says, I've shared my motivations, my frustrations, my fears, my successes. I've opened everything up to you. And he says, now, beloved, I need you to return the favor. 
I need you to open up to me. See, Paul is in that frustrating spot where you completely bare your soul to reach out to another and the other one doesn't respond. Truly a a give and take relationship. You give and you give and they take. Paul says here, I speak to you as children. Children. Children know, even children know, what is fair, right? My boys, seven with autism, three, um, who's a neurotypical child, I guess they call it. Any chance I've studied that? But both of these boys know what's fair. They get what's fair. Moms, this is why you have a professional-grade balancing scale next to your uh, pie at home, right? When you cut the pie, hey, he got more than me. That's not fair. This is, you bring out the slide rule, all that. And this is why you have a spreadsheet for the family chores. Wait, I did the dishes three times last week. This is why when it comes to choosing TV stations, you have a timer that's set to the worldwide atomic clock. Paul says, look, I speak to as children, even children get this, be fair here. I have opened up completely to you. I've shared with you. Now you also be open with me. Now let's go back to verse 12. We skipped that one. Paul says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. The word restricted there is stenokoro. It means to be in a narrow place, to straighten, to compress, to cramp. Notice the contrast here. Paul says, my heart is wide open, but you are cramped. You are constricted, compressed. Now, how would you describe yourself this morning? I mean, if you're honest, are you wide open? Is your heart wide open to God and to other people, to Christians? Are you able to open your mouth to express what's going on in your heart, whether it's good or bad? Or are you closed off? Are there certain parts of your life that have that rope that say, keep out? Are you invulnerable, making yourself impenetrable? C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. See, the agape life, Jesus said, I came to, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. We've learned many times, that's not about a Rolex watch. It's not about um, all of these, these things that so many people will tell you that Jesus wants you to have. The agape life is a life that is wide open to God and to other people. The abundant life is one of agape love, and that means opening your heart wide. It means being vulnerable. How can any two people, father, son, mother, daughter, husband, wife, us and the Lord, how can any two people love each other who don't really know each other, who 
cordon off parts of their lives. Look at me back at verse 12 again. He says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, it's obvious the Corinthians were restricted. They were tight. They were cramped up. But the Corinthians apparently thought that Paul was the source of their restriction. Remember, it means to straighten, to compress, to cramp. Let's go back to that picture of a parent and a child, a teenager, say. Mom, you're cramping my style. Mom, could you drop me off a half mile from the mall so no one will see me in this dorky car? (laughs) Dad, you're suffocating me. You're narrow-minded. Everyone's wearing these clothes. What, Dad, do you want me to wear a burlap bag? Okay, that works for me. Sometimes... When your kids break out of the box too much, they even end up on restriction. Restriction. Sometimes we're embarrassed of our parents, right? I keep thinking, I, my kids are too young now, but I'm going to practice and, and wear the, the shorts and the, the dress shoes and stuff out around the, the neighborhood. So when they get old enough. See, the Corinthians were saying to Paul, remember, he's their their father in the faith. They were saying, Paul, you're not as slick as other preachers. You're not cool like some other dads. They're saying, Paul, you won't let us do the things that other dads will. Paul says, verse 12, you are not restricted by us. You are restricted by your own affections. Parents, did you get that? You're welcome. (laughs) You can use this verse, memorize it. Chapter 6, verse 12, you are not restricted by us, you are restricted by your own affections. Sorry, kids. You are not restricted by us, you are restricted by your own affections. You're restricted by the things that you love. The things that you refuse to let go of. Ah, but this verse is not just for teenagers, is it? This verse is for any rebellious child of God. How do you guys look at your Heavenly Father? How do I look at my Heavenly Father? Does He cramp your style? Is He restricting? Is your picture of God that He's up there in heaven thinking of ways to squash your fun? What can I do next to make sure that these guys don't have any fun? You are not restricted by your Father. You are restricted by your own affections. That is things or relationships or indulgences that you won't let go of. Let me give you an illustration. This is like the teenager, the teenage girl whose parents are so restrictive against sex before marriage. But she doesn't listen. She won't give up that boyfriend. And she finds what's really restricting is taking care of an infant. Right? You're not restricted by us. You're restricted by your own affections. This applies to all of us. See, God is not out to cramp our style. Quite the contrary. The abundant life is wide open. It's sin that constricts. It's sin that isolates. It's sin that shrinks your world. And I believe the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are saying this morning to some of us, maybe all of us, verse 12, you're not restricted by us. 
you are restricted by your own affections. Interesting, an article came out yesterday in the Orlando Sentinel. A recent poll of 13 to 18 year olds. What makes them happy? It was kind of a surprise. The things that make teenagers 13 to 18 years old, according to this poll, is religion and family. Now, on the surface, can you think of two more restrictive things? <laughs> religion and family? But they're restrictive in a good way that you might live a wide-open, abundant life. Paul says, look, the thing that's holding you back from the life that you want to live, it's not me. The thing that's holding you back is the thing which has a hold on you. That's why he says, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Now, what's the context you always hear these verses in? Marriage, right? That's the one, this is the verse that you come to when you're talking about someone who might be interested in being married to an unbeliever. And it's, it's perfectly suited for that. It's, it's uh, very helpful in this context. As a matter of fact, if this verse, these verses were only in the Bible to save some Christians from really, really difficult marriages, it would be worth it. It would be a godsend. But that's actually not the context here. It's about much more than that. Much more than just saying, do not be married to an unbeliever. First, let's, let's talk about what is Paul not saying? Because I don't know about you, but depending on how, where you grew up, what church you grew up in, these verses and following can come across like God with a big old club. Right? And he's, he's going to get you. And if, if you don't straighten up, he's going to get you in these ways. It's going to be great as we see this. this. That's not God's heart at all. But first, what is he not saying? First, Paul is definitely not saying that we should sever all ties with the human race. People will say, you know, hey, what, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What, and what communion has light with darkness? Trying to get you to be isolated from the whole world. So that all that, all that exists is our church and no one else ever. Now, he's not saying that we should avoid all contact with the human race because they, those Terrible people, they are bad because we might get our self-righteous clothes dirty. He's not saying that. We are sinners saved by grace. We learned on Thursday, if you were with us, we are supposed to be what? Ambassadors for Christ. Now, if you show me an ambassador who locks himself up in the embassy all day, he's either under siege or he's a really lousy ambassador. Paul said in his first letter, chapter 5, he said, when I, warned you not to, when I warned you to avoid sexually immoral people, extortioners, idolaters, he said, I was talking about people who call themselves Christians. He says, I wasn't talking about the world. He says, if you want to avoid all of the sexual idolaters, um, all the extortioners, all those people, you're going to have to leave the world. Good luck with that. And Jesus himself sent us out as sheep among wolves. 
See, we are sinners who found a Savior and we have a message. And the only way to get that message is to be in the world. But Jesus also said, but do not be of the world. You get it? So, so what is a yoke that will help us? What is a yoke? A yoke is a device that is used to hitch two animals together to force them in the same direction. Right? A, a yoke harnesses the energy of two different animals and it sets them in the same direction. You can get a lot done. You can plow a really great straight line with a yoke, provided those animals can work together. See, that's why this applies so well with marriage. Truly, a wedding is two people getting hitched. It really is. Two people standing up and saying, we are forsaking all others. We, we will go the same direction. We will go the same pace. We will work together in sickness and in health till death do us part. It's two people saying, we are stuck together. You are stuck with me, and I am blessed with you. It's a wise man. But, but a yoke isn't just about marriage. A yoke is any relationship that forces you to go in the direction of another. Right? Certainly marriage. That definitely qualifies. Certainly business partnerships. Like a yoke could be a, a wedding license. It could be your name at the bottom of a contract. It could be a sexual relationship. The Bible says very clearly that the, the, the sexual act is like an act of, of glue. It, it brings us together. It sticks us together. It could be a best friend could be any friend who has a real influence on you that actually affects the direction that you're going. See, Paul here is alluding to a law that was in Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22.10, I think it is, said that uh, do not yoke an ox and a donkey. The ox was clean, considered clean. It was a hard worker. It would move in a straight line. The donkey was considered unclean. The ox tended to move forward in a straight line, work hard. The donkey was fickle, stubborn. It would often actually go backward. It was in, re in rebellion. It would go backward. What was the result then? Think about this. The re one of the reasons that God said, don't do this, because it was cruel. It was cruel, cruelty to animals. What's the result? Pain. If these two are bound together, the result is pain, chafing, Bleeding. And if it continued, infection. God said, don't do that. Was it because he wanted to cramp their style? No. Listen, why does God say to you, do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers? Is he thinking up new ways to restrict you? No, on the contrary, he wants you to be able to live a life that is wide open to him. He wants to spare you the, the chafing, the bleeding, pain. Now, quick note, in case you weren't with us in 1 Corinthians, maybe some of you are thinking right now, awesome, I'm unequally yoked, and now I can get rid of that donkey. <laughs> Sorry, doesn't work that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says that if you're 
husband or your wife is willing to stay with you, you stay with them. The marriage vow that you took, you took it before God. And it's a yoke. It's one that you need to be in as long as that other partner is willing to be in. God can redeem that, that uh, yoke. He can use it to build character in you. And you do have a mission field for sure. A message like this is always tricky because we've got people here who, have, who are right now in yokes like this. And it's painful. And they would admit it. And you have people who have been through those yokes and come out the other side. And you have people, I hope not, but you probably do in this room, have people right now who are listening to this message and going, well, I hope he's not talking about me because I'm getting ready to get into this yoke. For every person in the room who might be thinking, look, God wants to spoil my fun. I bet you there are five who used to think that and now would say, he's right. Listen to him. God wanted to spare me the pain, the bleeding, the chafing, but I didn't listen. Look at verse 12 again. He says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. And then now down in verse 14, he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, Paul gives four examples here of bad yokes. These are ridiculous yokes. These are yokes you will never see together. He says first, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? We saw just Last Thursday, 2 Corinthians 5.21, you can look there if you want, says, For God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that I might become what? The righteousness of God. God has made it so that I am righteous. I can't figure it out either. But he calls me righteous. And he says, What fellowship then has righteousness with lawlessness? Christian, God has made you righteous before him. You want to do what is right. Now, some of you who are yoked with unbelievers, you can testify. Because your unbelieving husband or wife says, excuse me, you want to give some of our money to that church? You want to do what's right, but you're hindered. It's, it's a struggle, right? It's chafing. He says, what communion has righteousness with lawlessness? I kept getting a picture of if, if righteousness, the picture would be of a policeman, Lawlessness would be of, of a bandit. What would you think if you saw a, a, a cop and a member of the organized crime hanging out together, making plans? Wait, that's called corruption. Corruption is another word for death. What communion, he says, has light with darkness? Jesus calls you, Christian, light. Jesus said, I, I came into the world that I might shine the light forth. He says, and now I'm calling you guys the light of the world. And John 3.19 says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. There's only two kinds of people. And I know this is an offensive message, but I didn't say it. God said it. There's only two kinds of people. There is light and there is darkness. He says, light and darkness don't have communion. If we were to turn off all the lights in this room, there'd probably still be some light coming in, right? Let's say, let's say we, we covered everything. There's darkness. Then you turn on the light, what happens? The darkness goes away. They don't work well together. They don't play well together. Darkness and light. The best you can hope for in a situation like that is a shadow. 
right? A shadow of what could be. Paul says, this is why God tells you, do not be unequally yoked. And then he gets even more ridiculous. Look at verse 15. He says, in what accord? That word accord is symphonesis. We get the word symphony from it. It means harmony. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial is another name for the devil. Paul says, you'll never see a scene where Jesus and the devil patch things over. You're never going to see them like, okay, we can work this out. They are mortal enemies. Right? Satan thought he had Jesus in the grave. Jesus will not stop until he has Satan in the pit. So what in the world are we thinking, Paul says, when we lock arms with a soldier from the other side? Again, when we lock arms, when we go the same direction. Do you get it? And there will come a time when your allegiance will be tested. Will I actually follow my king or will I follow this, this other man who is serving another master? He says, and what, was, what accord has Christ with Belial or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Interesting, the word there, part, carries with it the idea of an inheritance, of a destiny. Now, what is the inheritance of a believer? Heaven, eternal life, Jesus. What is the inheritance of an unbeliever? Not those things. Eternal torment in hell. Now, talk about a painful yoke. Two creatures straining in exactly opposite directions. Do you get it? If you're considering being yoked together with an unbeliever, Paul says, have you thought this through? It cannot possibly turn out great unless Jesus comes and redeems it. Now that happens sometimes, but I certainly wouldn't enter into a relationship that would take me in a direction and knowing that if I, if I maintain my course toward Jesus, that it's going to be really painful. See, God is not restricting you. It's your affections that are trying to restrict you. Look at verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is another ridiculous picture. There is absolutely no agreement with the temple of God and idols. You may remember the Philistines uh, took the the Ark of the Covenant and uh, they placed it there next to their god, Dagon. And Dagon uh, bit the dust. He fell over and they came back and, oh, we better prop up our god. When you have to prop up your god, that's a bad state. But (laughs) they propped up their god, kept happening. See, God doesn't, he doesn't share. (laughs) And... Any self-respecting Jew would, would shudder at the thought, what, an idol in our temple? No, that's, that's blasphemous. It's wrong, it's blasphemous, it's terrible, and that is agreed. So Paul reminds them, verse 16, well, you are the temple of the living God. He says, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their, their God and they shall be my people. He's quoting here from... He's actually paraphrasing from a lot of different places. Jeremiah 24, 31, 32, Ezekiel 11, 36, 37, and others. Lots of times God says, look, this is my desire. This is what I will do one day. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now that was future tense when they wrote it in the Old Testament. You guys know that's past tense now? Do you guys know that Paul says back in this first letter, 1 Corinthians 
He said, you are the temple of the living God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. God owns you. He wants to live inside of you. He does live inside of you. This is past tense. It's already done. Now, that's past tense. But look at verse 17. He says, therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you've got to find out what it's there for. He's, he's wrapping up that idea and saying, now listen, because of all of this, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I don't know if you see this, but in verse 16, he's talking about a past event. He's like, look, this has already happened. The, the presence of God already dwells in you. That's one of the reasons why it's so important that you um, are, are holy, that you don't have these idols. But in verse 17, he's talking future tense. He says, come out from among them and be separate. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Or actually, I should say 17 is present tense. If you'll do this, then the end of 17 and the beginning of 18, if you'll do this, I'll do this. You guys get it? This is a promise. God says, if you will do this, I will do this. Let's, let's break it down. Verse 17, he says, come out. That means to go out of an assembly, to forsake it. To say, all right, that's behind me. I'm walking out of the assembly, never to return. Now he says, be separate. What's that mean? It means to mark off a boundary, to draw a line. And then he says, and do not touch. Now again, a lot of these verses, people will look at the says, do not touch what is unclean. That must mean that um, if, you, if you play cards with the wrong person, or if you, if you ever are seen with someone who does something that sh- they shouldn't do, that somehow you become unclean. This word, do not touch, when it's actually translated, is to fasten oneself to, to adhere to, to cling to. What does that sound like? A yoke. It says, do not cling to what is unclean. Now, remember, this is not just relationships. We're beginning to see this is anything that's unclean. So far, he's been talking about people, about relationships. But now, it seems as he says, do not touch anything that is unclean. Let me ask you. Because maybe some of you are like, yeah, this message has been easy for me. Not very convicting because I don't have a lot of those bad influences on my life. don't have a lot of people that are bad influences. Let me ask you, what are you yoked to? What habit is it? What sin, what weakness takes you in a direction you don't want to go? Is there something in your life that leads you to lawlessness, to darkness? Is there darkness in your life that wants to lead you to its king? There's a promise here, you guys. He says, if you will come out from among it, if you will forsake it, if you will be separate, if you will mark out boundaries, if you will draw a line, if you will not be joined, yoked to that which is unclean, the promise is, look at verse 18. If you'll do these things, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Now maybe you're thinking, I don't get it. I thought we were already sons and daughters we are if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior you are his son his daughter but let me ask you do you feel like it 
Do you feel like it? He says, I will dwell with them and they shall be my people. That's past tense. He's dwelling with you right now. He's right here, right now. That's already done. But here he says, I will be a father to them. That's a a promise. It's a separate thing. It's a promise that's available. And listen, it's contingent on whether or not you are willing to separate you, separate from that which separates you from God. Do you get it? Maybe not yet. See, God is still your father. But what he wants is the same thing that you want deep down. Intimacy with you. Verse 18, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, verse 1, this was a really terrible uh, choice of uh, chapter headings. Because chapter 1 says, therefore, to all of what we've just seen. Therefore, having these promises. What are the promises? That if you'll come out, if you'll be separate, if you will remove this yoke, he says, I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters. He's talking about a close relationship that is wide open. Basically, you will be happy. See, it's a shame that these verses are used as a club by legalists to cloister Christians into our own little castle. The exact opposite is God's heart. He says, look, cleanse yourself, not because I'm restricting. My heart is wide open for you. It's your affections that are restricting God is saying, let those things go. Those affections, let them go and see what joy I bring you. Verse 1, therefore, having these promises, these wonderful promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let's break that one down. Cleanse ourselves. Now, if you've been here any length of time, you know that you've probably heard me say that if you don't know Jesus... You don't have to cleanse yourself to come to him, right? You come to him and he cleanses you. And that is definitely true. If you don't know Jesus today, you don't have to go home and take a shower and decide you're going to be all better and then come to him. That's not at all what's going on here. We're talking about intimacy with people who are already his sons and daughters. When it comes to intimacy, we right here, we are commanded to clean ourselves up. But let me explain it in a way that might shed some light on it. Maybe it would be better said to give up, to let go. The word filthiness there is molino. It means defilement, pollution, a stain. Okay, I came up with a really odd illustration, and I apologize now. Dads, you love your sons, your daughters, right? They will always be your sons, and your daughters. There's nothing that they could do that would make you love them less. But what if they constructed their own little life-size friend made out of manure? (laughs) And this was their best buddy. They carried him around, built a little sidecar for him, Maybe they called it Patty. <laughs> Sorry. But they really love this thing. They really love this little friend made of manure. <clears throat> really affectionate toward it. They rolled around with it. They really loved it and they became defiled, polluted, stained. And what if they came to you and said, Dad, give me a hug? 
Now they're still your kid, right? The, the relationship there is there, but it's the intimacy that might be lacking. And you would say to them, honey, I really do want to give you a hug, but let's give you a bath first. What do you say? And your son or your daughter turns to you and says, okay, but can Patty come along? Uh, no. Patty can't come along. Look, I'll always be your dad. But if you really want intimacy, if you really want to be clean, you are going to have to let go of that. See, that's what God says this morning. Verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. That means your actions, the things that your body does, but also of your mind. Romans 12.2, right? Renewing our minds. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. One last admonition there. Don't be fooled by that word uh, perfecting. That can throw you into a tizzy. Wait, I have to be perfect? Good luck with that. You will not be perfect until you see him face to face. Interesting that the word perfecting there actually means to take upon one's self. Now we're back to a yoke. See there, there's another yoke that's available to you, Right? Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, he's a hard worker. He's one who can do a lot of things, but he's gentle. He won't leave you in the dust with... with Scars on your neck. It says, I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word easy there means well-fitting. Perfectly suited. Some commentators think that one of the things that this carpenter, Jesus, made were yokes. Apparently his father was called a master carpenter and that was one of the things that, that they, they made were yokes. So if that's true, then Jesus knew just exactly how to craft a yoke that was well-fitting. Now, understand, Jesus is not saying you won't have to work hard. He's talking about a, a yoke that is well-fitting, that fits so well that you can accomplish a lot and look back and go, wow, look at that. And it wasn't all that painful. A yoke that's suited for hard work without chafing, wearing, or bleeding. Do you get it? See, this section is not just about quitting things and putting on self-righteousness. That's the way this is taught most of the time. This is about stepping out of a yoke that is killing you. Stepping out of a yoke that is making you bleed. That is constricting, is painful. And stepping into a yoke with Jesus. Letting him carry your burden and living a life that is wide open. So let me ask you, is your yoke today, is it hard or is it easy? Jesus stands ready to be yoked with you today. To walk in intimacy, a life wide open. The choice is yours.